is David Suiza. Welcome to my podcast. Today, we're delighted to have my dear friend and best-selling author in the New York Times with his new book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, Yossi Klein-Alevi. Yossi, welcome. Ah, it's just great to be with you. Not just dear friend, but brother. Uh, thank you. It's been quite a ride for you the past few months. Can you give us an idea of this book tour and the whole journey of writing a book that shot up to the top so quickly? What's it like? Well, it's a little disorienting in that I, um, you know, I think there's something deeply schizophrenic about the writing process. You, you sit in a room and it's just you and the screen and you develop a kind of insularity that uh, that allows you to to keep going and to 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 write but then at a certain point you send it out and what's so disorienting about that process is not only the the jarring transition from complete silence and isolation which is the writer's normal life to the stage but you also make the transition from owning your writing to letting go of it. And, you know, I worked on my last book, Like Dreamers, for years. And it was something that I owned. And I didn't show the, the, the drafts to maybe to a couple of people. I showed it to Sarah, my wife, a couple of other people. But it was really the sense of private ownership. And then suddenly it goes out there and you don't own it anymore. And I have not been able to, to look at that book for years. I, it's like it's not mine anymore. Now, in the case of this new book, I was sitting in your balcony many years ago, and the balcony itself in your home was nourishing this idea for this new book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. And I remember when you had the idea for the book. Mm -hmm. So in this case, that place of solitude Absolutely. Nourished you, if you can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I live in a neighborhood called French Hill, which is the edge of uh, Jerusalem. And I live in the last row of houses in French Hill. And looking out from my balcony uh, are Palestinian villages. And, and separating my hill from the next hill is the security barrier, which is a physical concrete wall in Jerusalem. And... The, the intimacy that I spoke about earlier, the, the, the intimacy of the writing ex experience, uh, was, even, was even greater in this case because, as you, as you note, it, the book is about my private space. It's about, it's about sitting in my study or on my porch and looking out at this very complicated view and writing these letters to a neighbor on the next hill. And so... The, not, not only is the writing process uh, inherently personal, but in this case, the subject, the landscape of the book was part of that solitude. And, and now to just send it out there and have people either like it or dislike it, which I fully expected because it's a, the book I think is a, is a litmus test really for what people think of the conflict generally. And people tend to put their ideas on 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 the book, but there's there's this added sense. I won't I won't go so far as to call it violation, because a writer wants to be read, 
uh, that's a little too dramatic to call it violation, but there is this, this sense of dissonance, of, of unease, where you, you, you let the book go, and it's not yours anymore. Was part of the unease, Yossi, is the, the realization that the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians is in a state of coma, there's, there's an utter absence of hope right now that it's probably never been um, so really in a state of despair. Did, were you concerned about that, that, that uh, all the cynicism that's built up and people are going to say, well, here's another book, no matter how beautiful the book is, no matter how much empathy he has, no matter how passionate he expresses his case, it won't really make a difference because there's just no hope for peace. Well, in a way, the situation made it easier for me to write. Uh, during the 1990s, I was very much an Oslo skeptic. I came to the conclusion, which more and more Israelis concluded through the 90s, that w the Oslo process was a one-way peace process and that Israel had deluded itself into thinking that we'd found a peace partner in Yasser Arafat. And I saw that as a war process and not a peace process. And so now that the conventional wisdom is that the peace process is finished and there's no hope for a two-state solution. Now I feel that I can write in a way uh, about peace and about the hope for peace that's not going to be feeding illusions. And that always worried me in the past, is that to write about hope and peace meant that, that you were risking reinforcing the delusions of, of the left. And I wrote a book uh, called At the Entrance of the Garden of Eden, which came out in 2001. It was about a journey that I took into Christianity and Islam, the faiths of my neighbors in Jerusalem. And the book came out, well, it came out on September 11, 2001, but it also came out for me as an Israeli more immediately uh, uh, during the period of the Second Intifada when buses were blowing up uh, on an almost daily basis in Israel. And I was worried that that book would feed the wishful thinking uh, on the left. And now the situation has hit rock bottom, and I, I don't have to worry that this book is going to be feeding wishful thinking because uh, my plea in this book is let's not give up entirely on wishful thinking. And we need wishful thinking uh, can be dangerous when it starts taking concrete political expressions, like the Oslo process. But the hope for peace is so deeply Jewish that I, I feel we are doing a violation to ourselves if we, if we give up hope for peace altogether. There's this very powerful and, and complicated verse uh, in the Torah uh, commanding us, Bakesh Shalom, seek peace, viradfehu, and pursue it. And what's complicated is the word viradfehu. Why not just seek peace? That is not enough. And viradfehu, pursue peace, that word haunts me. Because what that word tells me is that even when there seems to be no chance for peace, that's when you pursue peace. When, when you're in a state of despair, and, and the, the, this deep sense, this fear that I have 
of, of the Jewish people or large part of the Jewish people, or certainly in Israel, becoming cynical or despairing about peace is spiritually damaging. And believe me, I understand the, the political wariness of, of wishful thinking. But what I'm trying to do in this book is make a distinction between the spiritual pursuit of peace and, and the need to be very cautious about the political pursuit of peace. And, you know, David, this is something you and I have talked about. Peace is not a left-wing value. It's a Jewish value. It's not a left-wing cause. Peace belongs to me as much as it does to any, any other Jew, regardless of what our politics are. And how we, how we pursue peace, what the political expression of that pursuit of peace is, that's, that's what we should be arguing about, but not about peace itself. And one of the tragedies of the Oslo process, one of the things that I find it so hard to forgive Arafat for is that he made us suspect the very word peace. The word peace became a kind of synonym for wishful thinking. Okay, so let's talk about the how, because right now there's a whole movement in America, in the, especially in the young generation, where the way that they have decided to pursue peace is just to have demonstrations that call for an end to the occupation. And it's as if everything is in Israel's hands. Right. As if Israel can just instantly end the, <clears throat> the occupation. And what's your reaction to that? It's an expression of the dead-end internal Jewish debate, where on the one side you have the proponents of the status quo, there's no chance for a two-state solution anytime soon, which I certainly believe, as do most Israelis. If we were to create a Palestinian state tomorrow, it would almost certainly be taken over by Hamas. It would be one more dysfunctional uh, Middle Eastern state. It would more likely resemble uh, Syria, and Iraq, or Yemen than, 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 a, than a functioning state. And so that's one camp. And the other camp is... Well, the occupation is a disaster, and it is a moral threat, long-term threat to the Jewish people, certainly a demographic threat, a political and diplomatic threat, and I agree with that too. So my question to the two camps is, what do we do if we can't create a two-state solution now and, and we recognize that ruling over another people as a permanent condition for Israel is also a disaster? There's a wide spectrum between those two positions that we need to start exploring. For example, if we are serious about at least the principle of a two-state solution, should we be building in settlements that are outside the settlement blocks? My unequivocal answer is no. And what's happening is that we allow the status quo to be, become a, a, a pretext for giving a free hand or vert, a relatively free hand to the settlement movement whose goal is to preclude the possibility of a two-state solution. That does not seem to me to be in Israel's best interests. Uh, what are we doing to strengthen the Palestinian economy? Netanyahu for years has promised uh, a, a, a policy of, of strengthening uh, the economy uh, on the Palestinian side. He hasn't delivered. There are 
concrete steps we can take and concrete steps that we need to refrain from taking, like settlement building, that will not endanger our security. Right, and those nuances are not reflected Absolutely in the not. demonstrations Absolutely that you see not. in America that just say, end the occupation. End the occupation, and then what? You know, the, 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 the slogan, if not now, right, which is one of the left-wing Jewish groups, if not now, when? Okay. Uh, there, there are, there's a whole context. You know, Hillel didn't only say, if not now. He also said, if, if, if I'm not for myself, then who will be for me? And if I'm only for myself, then, then what am I? But, you know, we need to be balancing the essential insights of the left about the dangers of, of ruling over another people and the essential insights of the right about the need to take Palestinian rejection of Israel's legitimacy seriously. And the left and the right, after 50 years of a dysfunctional debate, need to start acknowledging that one reason why we're stalemated against ourselves is because each camp is speaking an essential truth about Israel's dilemmas. It's interesting because we have a, an equivalent battle here in America where the BDS movement the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement has absolutely no interest in peace, no interest in a two-state solution, no interest in a debate. And from what I hear from my friends on the right, it's like, how do you, how do you engage in peace with an opponent that has no interest in peace? And I think that sort of nourished the right-wing view in America among the Jewish community that says there's no one to talk to. So in the same way that you may no, not have a partner in Israel with the Palestinians, there's a sense here that we don't have a partner on U.S. campuses because they just their whole goal is to sort of delegitimize and undermine Israel. And it's really created this, this sense of fighting spirit. We've got to fight back. And in that spirit, it's hard to think peace. Look, I totally get it, and we have to defend ourselves. What worries me is that we have become a community that relates to Israel and the, and, and the story of Israel only through talking points. Now, I'm a veteran of the talking point war. I've been doing it for 25 years, writing op-eds, defending Israel from the latest slander, and that's essential. We need the right talking points. But in the process, we're losing our ability to tell our deeper story. And what is the narrative of Israel? What does it mean that we carried a, a dream for 2,000 years, a fantasy, an improbable fantasy, and then it's fulfilled, and we live after the, that fulfillment? This is what moved me about your book, Yossi, is uh, there was a, a, a kind of a, let's take a deep breath, let's step back, and let's forget about just for a second about the talking points and the political realities. And let's just go back to our core. And there was a real sense of lyricism and spirituality and how you spoke about the Israel story. And in a way, I just felt I hadn't read that before. You well, know? Thank you, David. And, and I'm, I'm wondering how that's going to play <clears throat> against the cynicism that is in our community right now where there's so much anger, so much bitterness, so much division. I'm really curious to see the effect 
that this book can have to see whether it can crack the ice of cynicism. I, I've been very moved by the response across the spectrum, and, and I, I exclude the hard right and the hard left, uh, who, as, as I anticipated and, and really uh, almost perversely hoped for, uh, would hate the book, and, and they've come through with flying colors. But there's a vast consensus in this community that loves Israel, that wants Israel to be strong, that wants Israel to be a good, healthy, moral society. And that's true from the, the mainstream right to the mainstream left. And, you know, I'm, I, I sit at the Hartman Institute, and we have a program there called I Engage. The premise of, of the I Engage curriculum is that normative Jews, whether, whether right of center, left of center, share the same basic values. We all want an Israel that can defend itself. We want an Israel that's moral, that's decent. And the question is our priorities. What, what comes first? Protecting civilians on the other side during war, protecting our soldiers. These are, these are arguments that we have among ourselves. But it's not that those on the left the normative left, don't want Israeli soldiers to be safe. It's not that those on the normative right want to, God forbid, kill uh, Palestinian civilians. So how do we respect the fact that we share a roughly the same basic commitments and vision, but we prioritize differently? It's so interesting, Yossi, because I'm, what I'm hearing is there's such a respect for process, which for me is like a real Jewish idea where, you know, we live in a world where everybody wants a solution and we want to fix problems. And at the end of the day, you know, you can't fix all the problems, just like you can't, the two-state solution in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a plumbing problem. We can call a plumber that can be fixed. So I think there's so meanwhile, a, what happens to the quality of our community conversation? Correct, exactly. correct. So I, that's why I want to ask you about, uh, you, you actually went into J Street, you invited me. You mentioned that last night, and I spoke at their national conference. Right, right, yeah. right. Can you talk about that because they have a reputation? As well, being very you know, nice. I I don't come from that camp. I uh, I grew up on the right. I identify myself now very much as a centrist. Um, my natural home when I come to the Jewish community, when I come to visit, I'm, I come on lecture tours to the states. Uh, is APAC. It's certainly uh, it's certainly not J Street, but they invited me to come present on uh, on my book. What I told the audience was, this is not my natural comfort zone, but I felt that if I'm reaching out to my Palestinian neighbor, I can certainly reach out to my brothers and sisters with whom I have some deep disagreements, and I was I felt very, I felt welcomed. And I felt that what I said was appreciated because it was coming from that spirit of candor on the one hand. I wasn't pretending to be part of that camp. And on the other hand, these are my brothers and sisters. And as long as you are still within the wide boundaries, and for me, the tent has to be as wide as possible, where you care about Israel, you love Israel, we may have deep disagreements. The moment that you're, you're, you step out of that 
that tent, for example, there are organizations that Jewish groups that do not love Israel, that hate Israel. They are not my partners, and I wouldn't go to speak even if I were invited there, and I certainly don't imagine I ever would be. But to be in, in engagement with those parts of the Jewish community with whom I disagree, I disagree with, 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 uh, with the right on, on, a, on a whole slew of issues. I disagree with the ZOA. If I were invited to speak at the ZOA, and I have been in the past, of course I go. You know, what, you know what, I, what, I, what I sense with these polarities is on the one side, you have the obsession with the solution, which is J Street. I once heard the joke, you know, if, if they were selling, if, if, if two-state solution was a product, they'd be out of business. <laughs> They're completely obsessed with the end product of yeah. doing that. And then on the other hand, you got the, the cynics who are completely obsessed with the idea that it's impossible and what you're left with is an utter absence of conversation. Exactly There's right. nothing left That's to great, talk it's about. It's a great insight. It's you a know? great insight. And, and I think what your book is coming to remind us that there's still lots to talk about. There's yes. a vocabulary. Yes. Can we have a conversation? Now, I see my book as an invitation to multiple parallel conversations. The first conversation that I'm trying to nurture here is between Israelis and Palestinians over the question of the Jewish story, our legitimacy, our narrative, which has been completely distorted and erased in the Middle East, in the Arab world. And I don't believe that peace can ever be possible in the long term if at least part of the Arab world and part of Palestinian society doesn't start letting go of this war against the Jewish narrative. So my book is, a, is, is about who we are. It's about the Jewish story. It's about our return. It's about holding on to this dream of return. It's about the way that, the brilliant way that the rabbis, Chazal, structured Judaism after the exile to place the lost land at the center of our rhythm, of our religious and, and seasonal rhythm, so that we never relinquished our attachment and our claim to this lost land. Right. You've come back to tell us there's still lots to talk about, in a way, it's like you bought some spiritual insurance, realizing that, let's just say, in a worst-case scenario, pieces could be decades away. Let's say it's really not going to happen. In the meantime, what do we do? And what happens to not only the quality of our conversation, but what that conversation reflects, which is the quality of our collective soul? What happens to the Jewish community? What happens if we don't have peace? for another few decades. And we continue ruling over the Palestinian people because we have no alternative. And, I, and, and that is a very real possibility. So do we just shut down? Do we then say, well, we're, we're, we're better than Syria? Thank you. you know? Okay, I will use that argument if I'm arguing with, with the UN. I will then say, you hypocrites. You devote more resolutions to attacking the only democracy in the Middle East than you do to Syria and Iraq and Yemen combined. I, but that's not good enough in my internal Jewish conversation. That's, don't give me the Syria argument when I'm sitting with you as a fellow Jew. Don't tell me we're better than Syria. Who are we? What is the Jewish people? Is that that's our aspiration? Is that we're not Syria? Right. So if, if we take that to the next step where permanent 
quote-unquote uh, permanent occupation is a disaster for, for the Jews and for the future of Zionism, right? You take that to the next step. Is, are you concerned that a cynical, corrupt Palestinian leadership that hates Zionism in the first place will see that as a good thing for them? will see it as uh, they have no incentive from their end and the occupation because they see that it's destroying us. I, I was once talking with a former activist uh, from Peace Now, and he said something that's really stayed with me. He said, the Palestinians will not let us end the occupation. And that's certainly been the pattern. And one has to wonder why. Is it because the Palestinian ethos is, is so dependent, the Palestinian national identity is so dependent on the conflict that ending the conflict is, 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 is too terrifying? Is it because of a distorted sense of absolute justice where if not every one of my demands are met, then, uh, then there's no deal, no sense of, of entering into a, a compromise? that negotiations are really about give or take, give and take. And so these are, these are serious questions. And there are people in Israel who think that we may have to force a two-state solution on the Palestinian leadership. I, I like our friend Michael Oren. Like, like, like Michael Oren. And, um, and others who, who really believe that it is an existential need for Israel to free itself from the status quo, you know, I'm not there yet, but I can I can see the 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 argument. Now, what does progress look like? Because you know we're here in America, and we don't have an occupation next to us. We don't have bombs that fall on us. For us, Israel is an idea. Right. Israel is a subject. Israel is a news item. Right? But progress, David. David so progress. let's say here in America. Yeah. You know. Uh, what does progress look like in our community? Because right now we're pretty much—it's it's an incredibly divided community. Yeah. The the conversation has become shriveled and coarsened, and very polarized. And how do you see progress in 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 our community here? So when I when I said before that I I hope that my book will trigger multiple conversations, the conversation between Israelis and Palestinians over narrative is one conversation. And that, and that conversation, by the way, is, is, needs to be mutual. We talk about our narrative, they talk about their narrative, and you don't leave the narrative at the door when you, when you enter into the negotiation room. Middle Easterners are their story, whether Arabs or Jews. We are our past. We're in constant conversation with our past. And part of the problem of the way the peace process was structured in the past was that it was a Western process where, where it's all future-oriented. It's all about solving the problem. Well, what about who I am? What about my story? And, that, and if you don't honor that story in some way, if you don't bring that, those conflicting stories of Palestinians and Israelis to the table, those stories will sabotage the future. So, so that's one conversation that I, I hope this book will will encourage or model you know let's let's be realistic about this I, I I see this book as 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 at best modeling a possible conversation the um, 
and and to that end, you know, the book has been translated into Arabic, and it's available for free downloading, and that's part of And apparently, of, uh, uh, I heard getting. that a Palestinian has written, started writing his own book, yes, Letter to My Israel Neighbor, right? Yes, yes. And, and, and I I'm heard getting, that you read a couple of chapters already? And they're very powerful and very moving, and uh, as we say in Hebrew, yeshav maledaber, there is what to talk about here. And I've been getting lots of responses, some, some bad, some, the, some the, interesting. Does his letter recognize your narrative as much as your book yes. recognized yes. his narrative? Yes, he does. Mm -hmm. He does. And he says there are two legitimate narratives here, and they both need to be honored and given political expression. Well, it'd be interesting to see if that book got published. So, so uh, yeah. but, 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 but I want to get yeah. back to your question, because there are other conversations that I hope this book will trigger, including a conversation among American Jews. And, and the challenge that I see this book posing to the American Jewish community is that to the right-wing part of the community, this book is offering a language of empathy for the Palestinians that doesn't compromise our narrative. And, that, and the, the implicit challenge to the right is, can you maintain the integrity of your political position, and still show some compassion for what has happened to the Palestinians, even accepting the fact that I certainly do, that so much of what's happened to the Palestinians is the fault of Palestinian leaders. Still, a people has been broken, and can we, can we acknowledge that? That's my challenge to the right. My challenge to the left, and this I'm going to borrow a line from you, David, is I get tough love, and I understand that your relationship to Israel today can be best expressed by tough love. But as my friend David Suisa says, um, I, I hear the tough, where's the love? And so critics of Israel on the left, do you love the Israeli narrative? Will you defend the Israeli narrative? Will we hear more than just criticism? And the challenge of the book to the left is that you can defend the Israeli narrative and not betray the hope of peace. The two are not contradictory. I want to talk about the word love because there's so much love in your book. There's so much passion. Uh, and it seems that in America, the problem, the intractable conflict with the Palestinians has obliterated uh, the whole conversation about Israel. It, it has dominated the conversation, whenever somebody makes an ill-fated attempt, you know, at Hasbara, you know, that Israel did this thing beyond the conflict, it never works because it's always the elephant in the room, mm -hmm. right? So the, the challenge is how do you express love um, in a, when, when you feel bitter? And there's a tremendous amount of bitterness that has built up in America among the Jewish critics of the occupation, and it seems to me the whole idea of love has become just a throwaway bone. You know, I, uh, yes, I love it, but, and th this challenge of being able to love a country that you deeply disagree with on one issue. The bitterness, bitterness is a poison, and it's seeping into parts of the Jewish left and the Jewish right. I can show you some responses that I get from the right to my Facebook page. 
and I just can't believe the vitriol, the hatred. Give me an example of each, from the right or the left. Just paraphrase. Only a fool would think that uh, that peace is possible. Um, mockery. Mockery. Um, your your congratulations. Uh, you're doing. Uh, you're going to make a lot of money by selling out to the left. That comes from people who knew me when I was right. <laughs> and so, oh, well, if, if, he's, if he's now shifted and they assume that the only place you could go to from the right is the left because it's a black and white world. So if you've made that shift, then obviously you're doing it for money. And so you're, you're a fool. You're self-deluded. But not really. You're not really a fool. You're actually unscrupulous because you know exactly what I know, which is that peace is impossible, and yet if you're going to be writing a book to a Palestinian neighbor, then obviously you're doing this because you've, you're selling out. I bet for, you most of them haven't money. read the book. So, well, I'm sure none of them. Not, uh, these were emails that I got when, just when I announced the book before it even came just out. Just from the title. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and what about on the left? Well, on the left, it's um, uh, your... Um, you know, you're not fooling anybody. We know who you are. You know, you're still a Kahanist, uh -huh. you know, because I grew up in, I was in the Jewish Defense League. And so when I was 18 years old, and I'm 65 now, but no, Tomorrow, you're Tomorrow, happy a, birthday. Thank you, David. And uh, so, but no, you're a Kahanist, you know. And, and, and what's so interesting is that for certain ideologues, you are who you were, who you will be. There's no possibility of evolving, of change, because that's their model. That's who they are, uh, whether, whether it's on the far left or the far right. And, and I know people who have not changed since I knew them when they were 18. And, you know, okay. You know, you used a line last night at our event at Museum of Tolerance, uh, dangerous curiosity. Uh, I, I was really struck by that line. You mm. also used it in, a, in an interview. And because I've been a big proponent of curiosity my whole life, I, I just, uh, it's been a big part of my life. I just it's love one of, curiosity. I think it's one of the things that, that brought us together as friends. Just, uh, yeah, I'm just incurably curious. And I just want to know, I'm curious. But I've never yeah. heard the word dangerous <laughs> <laughs> connected to that word. It yeah. fascinated me. Yeah. So just, well, let's end on that note. Talk to us about what you meant by that. I think that the fundamentalists in in, in all religions and all political positions are right to fear and despise curiosity. You have to keep the mind small because as soon as you open the door to curiosity, it's very dangerous. Other ideas come in, subversive ideas. You begin the process that can lead to empathy, which is seeing the world through other eyes. It's not sympathy. Empathy goes much more deeply. And for me, the process of empathy began with the dangerous question of curiosity. Well, how do the Palestinians actually see this conflict? How do my neighbors experience daily life at the checkpoints? And, and, right. But and, that's not a political judgment. Right, right. It's 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 the curiosity 
of a writer and a journalist. Right. But, but the fear of curiosity doesn't just come from religious dogmatists because there's all kinds of dogmas, right? Absolutely. The, it, comes, so, sec, it, can, it can come from, from secular fundamentalists as well. Is it fun, fundamentalists of all stripes? The minute you are committed to your point of view and you're madly in love with your point of view... To the exclusion of all other points of view. That's when curiosity becomes dangerous. That's right. Exactly right. Right. So you might have a, a secular Jew, for example, that has absolutely no curiosity to meet a Jew in Marishari. That's right. Now, now in order to, to act on the impulse of curiosity, you have to be deeply rooted. This is the paradox here. You have to be deeply rooted in who you are, what you believe, and that gives you the confidence to reach out without fear of losing your, your most basic inner core. Now, when you reach out, and if you reach out in a deep way, you will be changed, inevitably. Something will be changed, but you don't need to risk your inner core. And so the premise of this book is that I can reach out to my Palestinian neighbor, I can be curious, and I can even take that next step to empathy, but I am not in danger of losing my love for my story. I'm not in danger of, of forfeiting my loyalty to my people. I want to expand my capacity for, for, for understanding, for being in this world, and at the same time to remain deeply rooted in the loyalties that I cherish. Well, on that note, Let's hope that this combination of inner strength and inner confidence in one's identity and the ability to engage in dangerous curiosity can infiltrate the Jewish community in America. Yeah, thank you so much, Yassin. Thank you, David. Pleasure.